Many of you are familiar with Toastmasters. If not, if not, uh, Toastmasters is uh, an organization designed uh, for individuals who want to learn how to speak publicly but do not have a facility or people to help them. So if you want to learn how to speak publicly, then the place to go is Toastmasters. Uh, they will coddle you, they will nurture you, and bring you along one small thing at a time. Uh, if you uh, are afraid of, of uh, speaking in public, uh, Toastmasters is the place. If you have some kind of speech you need to, uh, to kind of get together for your job, guess what? Uh, Toastmasters is the place. Uh, it is an organization that's recognized uh, over the entire world. There are people everywhere as part of Toastmasters clubs. Do any of you remember the first time that you had to speak in public? I don't know about you, but I remember the absolute fear I had of speaking in public. You know, that uh, one class I had in high school that first time, uh, I remember it was, uh, it really wasn't even a, a speech per se, uh, but it was just a debate with a young lady. And uh, I just had a tendency, I knew uh, that in certain points I was so wrong, I was so wrong, but I was absolutely determined with all the strength and my will, I was going to make sure, even though I knew I was wrong, that she was going to be wronger. So I let her present her side and I went up there and my plan was to tear her to shreds. That was my plan. And that's exactly what I did. And then when I finished about a couple of hours later, uh, my English teacher, uh, she came to me uh, and uh, well, she went and found me. I had a number. I'm like, why does she want me? And she found me and she says, David Spencer. I'm like, what? She says, you better apologize to that young lady. I'm like, for what? I said, wasn't it a debate? And I'm like, uh, she says, but you didn't have to be as mean as you were. I said, but didn't I do it nicely at, at least? And she says, you may have done it nicely, but you were mean and you better apologize. Uh, so many of you have heard stories that I used to tell about our orchestra director there at CVS and uh, how uh, we were really a part of his team. And uh, so I, I told the English teacher, I'm like, well, you know, this is part of the thing. I'm not sure if I should apologize. You know, so word got to him, and he calls me into his office, and he's like, Spencer, what is up with you? Uh, well, he says this in, in front of about 126 other uh, students in the room. He says, Spencer, what, uh, what is up with you? I need to see you in my office right now. And, of course, everybody said, uh-oh, he's finally in trouble. That's what they said. Finally, somebody finally got him. And he says, I heard that you just, her name was Pam Brown. I heard that you just tore her to shreds, and that was not right, and you need to apologize. And I went on to explain to him why I did it, and uh, he looked at me, and he just laughed. And he held his hand up. He says, give me five. And he says, thank you so much, because sometimes she can just get on my nerves. He says, now, when we get out of here, you better apologize to her. <laughs> I'm like, man, I don't get a break. I said, well, at least I feel a little better. So I went and apologized to her. I didn't mean to tell this story, but here it is. I went and apologized to her, and she says, you know you were wrong. I said, oh, yeah, I know I was wrong. I, I did not have all my facts straight. But the bottom line is, one of the reasons that we, uh, one of the reasons that we uh, convey a message publicly is because we're trying to provide information to folks. 
And at the end of the day, uh, everyone has to decide whether or not to accept it, right? Accept it and move upon what they hear, or they have to reject it as well. Well, today in the book of Luke, uh, we're going to walk through uh, Jesus' first public speaking engagement as recorded by Luke. We will see the powerful presence of Jesus' message and the response of the listeners. But as we walk through here in Luke chapter 4, I don't want you to be passive. You don't like looking at a television show and sitting back and vegging out. I don't want you to be passive at all. I want you to engage your heart and your mind and decide for yourself, uh, what are you going to do with Jesus' words today? In fact, if Jesus were to walk in this place today, what would you do? Would you sit there passively and say, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before? Or would you say, you know what, uh, this is Jesus. These are the words of God, and I need to do something about it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And Luke, he writes, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Verse 18 now. And this right here is Jesus' message about his mission. And here it is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he says. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty, he says, those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, uh, the purpose of Jesus' message is to remove those spiritual hindrances that hold us captive. These very words of Jesus Christ, uh, the purpose of these words is to come in and to hit our hearts and to take us to a place uh, that uh, those things which hold us captive can no longer hold us captive. Well, other than not liking uh, who led them, uh, that is the Romans, uh, Jews didn't like the Romans leading them, uh, they never really considered the fact that they were in spiritual bondage. So they could see all of the Roman soldiers all over the place, uh, but they never considered uh, the, uh, the, what was going on with their own souls, per se. But they didn't like the Romans so much. Why? Because uh, they ruled their land and they were oppressed in many ways and, and, and much of their money went towards taxes. So don't forget about Tuesday. That they, uh, they had so much taxes on them that many people went into slavery because they could not pay their taxes. And in addition, these soldiers, as I said before, they were everywhere. So the Romans' philosophy was simply this. Uh, we will allow you to practice your religious anywhere and everywhere you want as long as it does not challenge the status quo. 
So as long as you leave the emperor alone, as long as you leave the governor alone, as long as you leave all these other folks that are doing wrong alone, you are free to practice your religion. Sounds familiar? So the prophets of Israel, and we have uh, uh, a list of those in scripture, who spoke of the injustice uh, that they would not find a good place during the Roman Empire. Why? Because their message, as they spoke of injustice and all the things that they were doing wrong, uh, Caesar wouldn't like that. He would be against that. Remember what happened to John the Baptist. Remember him? He who spoke out for the Lord and injustice because of what Herod was doing uh, with his wife, his brother's wife, and all the other mess that was going on, that he spoke up for all those things that were not right and what happened to him. They beheaded him. But other than this, uh, life for them was pretty much normal. The people in these towns and villages felt much like everybody else. All the struggles that they had, it was common to everyone else. They didn't feel like they were in spiritual bondage. So this is also where, uh, pretty much where the average person would find themselves today. They don't feel like, we don't feel like we're in spiritual bondage. Yeah, we may feel like uh, we are in debt. We may feel like we're having a hard time on the job. We may feel like, you know, uh, things are not going good with our relationship with our spouse. We may feel like we need to be in a better place, but we really don't necessarily feel like we are in spiritual bondage. Other than the spiritual matters, uh, we think that we are average. And, and as a matter of fact, the spiritual matters don't even cross our minds. So in other words, we think that if the words of any particular faith practice cannot deliver its own leaders, oftentimes uh, when we look at those who are at the head of the church, when we consider them, uh, we say, well, if those words can't deliver them, then how can those words help me? So we reject those words. We're turned off by what we see and what we hear in life in all the religious circles. But the problem is, is that uh, we ultimately end up being left hanging. We are stuck between a rock and a hard place with nowhere in between to fix what's really going on inside of us. The thing that nags us is, is not just a, a feeling that we have, not just an emotion, but it is a spiritual reality. If you were born in prison, and all you knew was behind these walls and this was what life was, pretty much most of us wouldn't think that they were in bondage. So that when we are born into this world, we think that everything is good. Until some preacher or some believer of Jesus Christ turns around and says things are not as good as how you think they are. That you're going to end up in a place that you're not going to like if you don't turn to Jesus. This is an interesting thing about spiritual matters. So Jesus goes on here in, 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 in verse 18, and he says what? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, I don't want you to gloss over this because this is a very important matter. And I believe that, uh, that Jesus quotes uh, not only this passage, uh, but he alludes to this thing for three different reasons. Uh, number one, it is indeed a prophecy of Isaiah, and we find this in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. 
which tells us that as Jesus prophesies, as he speaks this prophecy, uh, that we recognize Jesus as a prophet who walks according to the authority and the power of the prophets of old. And you remember those old prophets, right? Uh, during that time, God's messengers, the prophets, they delivered messages to the people to encourage them to get right with God. He says that uh, the prophets were supposed uh, to tell the folks to get right with God. Uh, but today I want you to know that God is not dead. That God is alive and he's actively working to bring people to himself today. So if you think that God is non-existent or if you think that God is like Elvis, right? Uh, how is God like Elvis? What do you think? You know about what they say about Elvis, right? Elvis has left the building. Uh, if you think that God is like Elvis, you are wrong. So not only does Jesus minister according uh, to the prophets of the Old Testament, but also this idea of uh, the Spirit of the Lord upon Jesus alludes to him being affirmed by God in his earthly ministry. Luke chapter 3, verse 21-22. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. With no other prophet did a visible sign of the Holy Spirit descend upon them and receive the affirmation of God himself. Jesus was clearly, Jesus is clearly more than a prophet. <clears throat> and then finally the Spirit of the Lord identifies Jesus as being God. This is where I believe is the major thrust of the authority in, in which this passage speaks of. So let's spend a little time there. Uh, so the Spirit of the Lord identifies Jesus as being God. Uh, for the Jews hearing this passage, uh, they would uh, automatically assume this is nothing more than a quote from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, as was previously mentioned. This would be the reason why it was so well received in the first place, because they heard it as a word of encouragement and nothing else. You know, when somebody encourages you, there's nothing like that. Amen? How many of you like to hear words of affirmation and words of encouragement? I don't know about you, but I certainly do. I love to hear when people build me up. Uh, but when people tell you these things, you know what? Uh, you need to fix this. We don't want to hear that. We want to tell them, you know what? Just go somewhere. I just want to be around positive people. So for the Jews, there was no real connection between this word and Isaiah and Jesus. There was no connection. This was just a little boy from Nazareth, now grown up. We're going to find out about that in a second. As long as people who are not spiritually discerning hear words that encourage them, they have no problem, typically, unless you do one thing. You know what that is? You can encourage people all you want, even through the word of God, unless you do one thing. You know what it is. You can tell them, you know what, you know, there's good things happening for you if you follow God. You can tell them that, and they feel real good about that. But unless you say one thing, you know, uh, then that turns the conversation. And that is if you connect that word with Jesus. As soon as you connect that word with Jesus Christ, then all hell breaks loose. Now, all of a sudden, you've got to defend yourself. 
You got to defend yourself because you're talking about Jesus. Uh, there are even some Christians who said, why you got to be talking about Jesus all the time? Yeah, y'all, every time you turn around, you're talking about Jesus. You're talking about the Lord. Why don't you just be normal, acting like a holy roller? Well, I, I, I would rather roll myself, have myself rolled into heaven uh, than to be rolling downhill to hell. So the Spirit of the Lord being upon Jesus is not some innocuous phrase because it says something extremely important about Christ. First, we remember that uh, at the advent or the coming of Jesus, he was operating according to the prophets, uh, the prophetic nature of the Old Testament prophets. So the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, takes on the character of the Old Testament. But also know that believers in the Old Testament, that they experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in a different manner than we do. That yes, the Holy Spirit didn't just come according to either, you, you, whether you say uh, John 15, 16, or according to Acts chapter 1, uh, or uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, did you not know that the Holy Spirit was always, uh, always around? Why? Because God exists in three eternally uh, persons, existent persons. And God the Father, right? God the who? And God the... There was never a time in which the three were not, because the three are how many? How does that, that doesn't even make sense. As a matter of fact, we talked about that in membership class today. That's why it's right on my mind. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord indicated that a person was empowered by God to accomplish a certain task. So the Spirit of God will come upon you to do something for God. Here's an example. Turn with me to Judges chapter 15. Or whether you see this for God or not God depends on, on, on how you view the passage. Uh, Judges chapter 15, verse 14. Got to move real quick now. This is about Samson. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught Fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. There's also other passages in Exodus and so on and so forth in which God had empowered by his very spirit of people to do the, uh, the artistry work of the, uh, of the uh, tabernacle, uh, of the temple, uh, of the tent of meetings and, and so on and so forth. So Jesus, in one sense, is therefore no different in that he tells those listening to him that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. So in other words, we recognize here, in, in, back in the uh, fourth chapter of Luke, that the Spirit of the Lord is now upon Jesus to accomplish a certain task. But Jesus also, uh, quite different from everyone else who received the Holy Spirit, Jesus also was able to send the Holy Spirit. How many people have you heard that of? So Jesus not only operated under the authority of the Holy Spirit, but he was able to send the Holy Spirit. Here we go. John chapter 15, verse 26. John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. Oh, there it is right there. But when the, helper come, when the Helper comes, uh, whom I will send to you from the Father, which is, in other words, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. 
So Jesus not only has the Spirit of the Lord upon him, but he also has, all right, here we go, and I told some of you in class I would talk about this, he also has the seven spirits of God. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about the seven spirits of God? All of a sudden, very quickly, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, very quickly. And I'm going to tie all this up in one moment, so be patient with me. Revelation 3. Verse 1, and the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Those of you who are in class, you already know who the seven stars are. Who are the seven stars? Let's try it one more time. Who are the seven stars? Are the angels of what? Angels of the church. Amen. So, but what are the seven spirits of God? Very easy. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Come on, turn. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Here are the seven spirits of God. You just count them. As a matter of fact, how many did you come up with? Seven spirits of God. Seven spirits of God. How many did you come up with? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Come on now, saints. How many came up with six? Right, classroom. How many came up with seven? Okay, there are seven. The seven stars, the, the, the number one is the spirit of the Lord. That is, if you missed that one, that is number one, the Spirit of the Lord. And then the others, uh, they kind of make sense as you walk down it. It's not that there are seven Holy Spirits. No, that is not the case. There are not seven Holy Spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. But these are God is operating within his power on the earth in order to bring a revelation of himself in the world. So many times Jesus gives us, as we move on, a self-revelation of himself. And this time is no different. At one time he said that he was the bread of life. He said that he was the door. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And he said uh, that he was, that he is the good shepherd. Now he tells us uh, not only uh, that the spirit of the Lord is upon him, but he has the seven spirits of God. It is one thing to have the spirit of God or the spirit of the Lord upon you to empower you, but it is another thing to accomplish it in certain ways as unique among all of mankind. This my brothers and sisters, is a prerogative of God and God alone. So having said all of this about Jesus, uh, possessing the Spirit of God, we must not overlook its significance and downplay it. This is the introduction which tells us that Jesus has the ability to accomplish everything he will mention after setting this groundwork. So Jesus, by him saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's saying more than just this simple phrase. It is loaded. He's saying, look, I'm God. He's saying, look, I have the authority of God. This is not just a person uh, picking up the word of God and quoting what they see out of the scripture. What Jesus was saying, this is referring to me. In other words, Jesus says, I am uniquely qualified to do everything I have said I will do. What we have just heard is the spirit of the Lord being upon Jesus and therefore identifying him as God. Jesus has the power. Jesus has the authority to affect change in your life. As we hear his words today. So Jesus says that uh, because he has anointed me here in verse 18, uh, Luke 4, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, the recovering of sight to the blind, uh, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, Jesus says that you want deliverance, I will give it to you. 
I don't think the Lord this and the Lord doesn't have my back. So therefore, I left the church. Oh, I don't think the Lord really watches out for me. Uh, my wife told me a really funny story today. I, ha I have to share this with you. This is, you know, she knows I'm trying to get myself ready for church, and she tells me a funny story. But it's very interesting. She says she was uh, talking to a uh, co-worker of hers, and we had been prayer, uh, praying and fasting about something, and God answered our prayer. And she said her co-worker told her, that's not fair. And she's like, well, what do you mean that's not fair? I mean, he says, like, you know, that's not fair to the average person because you guys are like, you guys are already up there. So is it, is, is, is it, really, is it really fair for you to ask God? Doesn't it make sense that he's going to answer your prayer? I'm like, what does he want us not to ask God for something? So God, in other words, he is at work. And the question that we must ask ourselves is, are we willing to grab hold of what he has to offer us? I know that some of you come in here, you're in bondage. And this bondage that Jesus is talking about, he's talking about that bondage that you are far away from God and you can't figure out how to get to him. Jesus says that he came to set you free. Jesus says that he knows you're walking around here in silent chains. He said he knows that you are a slave. You who, who talk about slavery will never again happen in the United States of America, yet you are walking around here in chains and spiritual bondage, and you don't know how to get out. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you how to get out, and how you're going to get out is first through me, because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because I am God, and there is nothing too hard for me. So what are you going to do with Jesus' message? That's the question you must ask. What am I going to do with what I hear from the message of Jesus himself? Let's look at verse 22, please. Luke 4, verse 22. So Jesus, he spoke this word to them. And they said, yippee! Right, what does it say? And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son... Well, you know, you know, sometimes, you know, it, 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 it pays to know a little bit about the original language, right? So they heard these wonderful words of Jesus Christ. They're just thinking, here's another man standing up here quoting scripture. So we hear these words, so we say, yippee, yippee, yippee. Oh, Jesus makes us feel so good. He's saying, these are positive things, and one day we're going to have it all. Just repeat after me. Yes, the captives are going to be free, and so on and so forth. I just want you to smile and be happy all of your life. Be happy, be happy, be happy. They were like, yippee, yay. And then somebody out the crowd said, isn't this Jesus Joseph's son? Well, see, the one thing we understand about the original language, the first word in that sentence is not. Uh, you don't see it in your translation, but I guess you, you can only trust me. So uh, if you want to see it for yourself, make an appointment with me. I'll walk you through the Greek text. But the first word in the text is not. And it's not just a regular not. It's one that assumes a question and also shows emphasis on the not. So it's like, you know what I mean, it's like uh, somebody that you know, right, and you may have heard stories like this, and, and they have made some type of uh, a claim to fame, right, and you're seeing them on television or on radio or something like that, and you're listening, yeah, 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 and then you say, wait a minute, ain't that little Jimmy 
that used to play around with all them folks and do all that bad stuff that used to live near the alley? Ain't that little Jimmy? And so it's like they say, well, wait a minute. Uh, this person is saying uh, that, uh, wait a minute, ain't that little Jesus? Ain't that little Jesus that used to live on so-and-so with so-and-so's son? What in the world? Who does he think he is? Uh, but Jesus didn't wait for another response. He goes to verse uh, 23, right? And he says to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at uh, Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown uh, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah uh, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them uh, but by Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Again, people love to hear the words of Jesus, uh, love to hear the words of God until you bring up Jesus. They were all pleased until uh, they thought they knew who Jesus was, and then they were ready to reject him. So Jesus read this text of Isaiah, and he indeed, he pronounced liberty to all the oppressed. So he offered them an opportunity to experience true freedom. Even uh, in their doubts, he wanted them to have true freedom. Where are you today? Why are you here today? Are you here only to occupy yourself with tradition or uh, to engage with people only? Or did you plan to come in this place today uh, to respond to God's words? So in other words, we all have a choice. You could either accept these words as the word of God, or you can call God's word common and reject them. Well, I know again that some of you that you may have uh, you you may have really wanted to hear from God about something that's going on in your life, but I want you to know that God has a primary answer for something else that you may not even be asking in the first place. Before I go there, uh, we need to see this in Luke chapter four, verse twenty-eight. And here it is, right? When they heard these words of Jesus, they were just ready to kill him. They were ready to kill Jesus when they heard these words. They were ready to throw Jesus over the cliff. And this is why I said earlier that any time the gospel goes forth, that oftentimes it is met with resistance. You see, this wasn't just only about uh, being mad at him. Right? Because he's thinking he's somebody that, that they believe that he's not. What this was about, can you imagine what would happen if they would have had and just threw him over before he had a chance to finish his ministry? You see, it would bring to a close his ability to bring redemption for us. It was not his time. That was not his time. And that's why he was able to get away. You see that there. Verse 27, 28, I mean 28, 29. And also 30. But Jesus says that regardless of where you are, he says he has an answer for you. 
He says, because he came to proclaim good news to you, to bring liberty to you. For those of you who can't see that Jesus came to open your eyes. I don't know what you're talking about. That preacher, I don't know what you're talking about. I just, I don't get it. Well, Jesus came to open your eyes. Set at liberty those who are oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. While Jesus and his church, uh, it's very uh, interesting that this right here, this passage is also known of actually spawning a whole new realm of theology called liberation theology in which people say that the entire church is nothing more than about social justice, right? Uh, but at the heart of this passage where Jesus does have concern for the poor, those who are with diseases and so on and so forth, uh, that the thrust of his message deals with us being connected with God. That is the blindness that we have. That is the oppression that we are experiencing because we don't know God. So Jesus, he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, this is also known in one way uh, as the year of Jubilee. Found in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. I'm not going to read that. But that is a time after 50 years that if you gave up yourself uh, because you gave up your property or anything that you own uh, because you couldn't pay your bills at the end of 50 years uh, that you would get it back. You would get it back. This is the year. So Jesus is saying that, that this is the year of the Lord's favor that he's come to set you free. What will you do with his message? What will you do with this message? Will you accept the freedom or will you want to cast his preacher over the edge? Will you say, yes, Jesus, I have been oppressed and I come running to you? Or you just take the words that you hear and you just brush them off like dust has fallen on your table. How will you respond to Jesus' mission today? With an open heart or will you walk out of here the same way you walked in? This is something that you have to deal with. And I'm going to ask you to deal with it now. God is speaking to some of you. Would you bow your heads, please?